fantastic, thank you. I've had to shut the curtain because it's so sunny down here because Watford is sunny at the moment. Everything's optimism. Oh, oh that, well, that's right. Okay. Well, I, I had to do the same thing this morning when I was doing my, my PT stuff, my, my podcast. So we have our first returning guest to the library. You're, you're known by Roy Keane and Johnny Nicholson, Michael Calvin, because many of your books are in the football library. But the first question before we talk about your new book, what have you read for the last year? What have you been reading? I've got a project now which is a complete departure. Um, I'm working with a severely disabled uh, Special Forces soldier. Oh, wow. An amazing guy. Um, I wanted to work in in another genre. So I've been looking at a bit of sort of Special Forces um, fiction stroke faction, but also... Because my collaborator is so severely disabled, I've been reading some books on that level of disability. So there's an absolutely brilliant book, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I'm I'm essentially trying to recreate the story of someone who's who's trapped in an an inert um, body and still has the intellectual capacity, uh, but just through injury, was shot through the neck. Um, spinal cord completely destroyed and went through a stage where the doctors were recommending that life support was switched off it was a miracle that he actually survived he was in Afghanistan uh, he was way behind the lines and it's a miracle he survived even to to get to treatment so I've been looking at that and, and associated with another a, a very very good book by um, uh, Henry Fraser um his autobiography, um, The Little Big Things, which is looking at his life. Again, he, he um, similarly uh, disabled, he, but he, he, paints with, he paints with his mouth. It's an incredible um, story. Toby, my guy, is a story really of, we didn't want to do a, what I call a bang-bang book, you know, aren't we superheroes rampaging around a desert? It was actually the inspiration that one gets from someone dealing with that level of disability can only move his head uh yet he's gone back into education got a degree now running his own business and and what we want to do with this particular book is to we want to be there for the person who wakes up from the whole cocktail of drugs and realizes just how fundamentally his or her life has changed so we want to basically say look you know toby went to the the point of he has actually got official sanction to commit suicide if he needs to take his own life um i'm sort of reading a lot about that a lot about very good book called humankind um i'm I'm just looking into philosophy so it's a bit it's a bit different from um any groin strains uh gaffer you know it's a bit it's it's, it's a bit of a departure but i suppose the one thing um, I would hope people would say about the stuff that I do in sport and football in particular is that I try and accentuate the humanity of the game and the humanity of sport in general. So, you know, with the new book, um, Whose Game Is It Anyway, I've tried to maintain that tradition, but also put it into a bit more of a personal context as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found that Rutger Bregman I read his first one, which was about the universal basic income, which I thought was fascinating. And I found Humankind. Uh, it was uh, one of, you know, those paperbacks, the versions of hardbacks that you get for review. 
So I've had that for the last few months and it seems, yeah, it seems like a very Calvin-esque book because it draws, or Syed, it takes kind of thing A and brings it to field B. So it's, it seems like it's um, going to inform your new book. And I wanted to know what um, publishing house that book is going to be on because it seems to me that you've transferred from Arrow Books to Pitch Publishing on yeah, a free. I, yeah, P- Pitch had been asking me to um, do something for them for you know, quite a while. Paul and Jane Camelin, who, who run the um, imprint, have always impressed me with just their sheer enthusiasm and professionalism. I just thought this time, because it's a, a, a different type of book in many ways, you know, if you look at what Pitch do, they've I think they're doing something like 90-odd books, sports books this year. They're certainly the biggest, the fastest-growing imprint. And I was, um, as I said, I was I was very um, taken by uh, the care, but basically the, the commitment that they have um, to the author. That's not to say that the other people I've worked with are anything less than terrific, but, you know, as my mum my used to say, you know, change is as good as the rest sometimes. So this was a different type of book in terms of, it's much more reflective in in, in in a personal in a personal sense. You know, it was written during the pandemic, and that was a time where I think all of us, in our own different ways, probably you know had a quiet search for meaning to a degree. And it came at a stage where, in in football terms, I'd, I'd fallen in a, I'd fallen out of love with the game in many ways, or certainly fallen out of love with what it represented increasingly which is the sort of hyper commercialization innately cynical world where you've you basically got the game being distorted by vulture capitalists and you know as we see in the moment at the moment with the development of you know the so-called swiss model or you know the ultimate, which will be a super league of Mm -hmm. sorts i'm sure it was a very personal book and it, it was basically triggered uh, by the death of my father-in-law, he was in a, a care home um, in Devon. Age ninety-seven, he was he was suffering from dementia. Essentially, he was a victim of that grotesque lie that the government threw a protective ring around care homes. They, you know, he was he was infected, and he, there was quite a few um, residents were infected by a fellow resident who mm. fell, went into went into hospital, was discharged. Without having a COVID test, he was positive, and, and basically, I think, I think five residents passed away. This is what um, um, Cuomo's in trouble for. His whole legacy, Andrew Cuomo, is going to be undone because he did that in New York State. It was the sheer humanity of Ollie Goss, who was my father-in-law. I'd known him for forty-five years, and you know, he was a great grandpa to my kids. In his last days, we couldn't be with him, obviously. You know, the last messages we had were via FaceTime, but it was in the, you know, when we were looking after his effects, we found a wooden box in a corner of an old shed. And when we opened it, it was full with um, carpentry tools. And they each had a golden, um, a name inscribed in golden letters, capital letters. And it was um, Molly, my father-in-law's father, who died in 71 and it was obviously passed down to him but what took my eye was on the inside of the the box were three 
fixture lists uh, from Watford's season in 1932-33. There's the first team, uh, first team reserve team, and a London midweek league team, which was obviously some sort of development team. And above that, one development team program, because obviously it was smaller. There was a very, very small thumbnail print of a player. What was at the time? I'm sure you'd know this, Johnny. Watford played in blue, I think, at the time. Yeah, they did. Yeah. yeah. I just wondered, well, who on earth is that? And I then basically set off to try and find out who that might have been. You know, look back. Um, Ollie Phillips, who was my first sports editor at the uh, Watford Observer, had done an official history of the club uh, about 30-odd years ago. And through that and through through some old um, websites and things like that, I sort of pieced together what that 32-33 season looked like. And in the last few days of my father-in-law's life, um, my wife asked him about his experience of football as a kid. And it was it was almost a timeless answer when he was about 10, 11, around about the time of that season, 32, 33. He used to walk, walk from West Watford through the terrace streets for about a mile to the ground. And Saturday was his treat day in terms of there was a sweet shop near the ground where they used to go in before the game, the anticipation of the game, walking back with his dad. His dad used to, he was a good player. So his dad used to go and watch him play as, youth, as a youth footballer. And it was just built up this picture of, the bond, the family bond that can be created by football and the intimacy of that contact. And that really beguiled me. And from the back of that, really, I was trying to then work out, well, why did I fall in love with the game as a kid myself? And so the only way I could really do that was to go through my own life. And I was a bit reticent about it in some ways because I didn't want to do a, you know, a traditional memoir because to be honest, you know, I just think they're a bit pompous sometimes. Well, yeah, and also, yeah, we should, for those who don't know Mike Calvin, which would be, um, which is a travesty, working class lad from Watford, and you're not the centre of the story. In none of your books are you the centre. In none of your documentaries are you the story. You're the observer. So mm. turning the microscope onto you must have been deeply unsettling. So how did you get around that? I just jumped in, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite unnerving to actually start writing about yourself, you know, even as a, you know, as a newspaper man or, or an um, columnist. You know, there's obviously an element of, of you know, a personal narrative in, in any opinion you come up with or column that you write. But this was me, so this was basically going back to, you know, when I was sick, I, I had TB when I was 16, and went into a hospital in, in Harefield in Middlesex. Mm-hmm. I was at the grammar school in Watford. They had to close that for a couple of days where everyone got tested. I had some sort of latent um, strain of it. And I had to test negative for three months before they let me out again. The sort of second chapter after I've, I've gone on from sort of articulating Ollie's position looks at me as a kid almost going through a, a rite of passage. You know, I won't give too much away about you know, the precise circumstances I lead that chapter off with, but it wasn't wasn't terribly pleasant. But it was me finding myself again through football, but also journalism, because at that stage, i just started my, um, my A-levels. I'd been wanting to be a writer for four or five years, bombarded the local paper with pieces from youth football and things like that. And while I was, you know, obviously in isolation, you know, the game meant a lot to me in terms of, I lived it through my imagination, literally. You know, I created my own football league, and uh, it was quite a vindictive bit of schoolboy 
spite, I suppose, um, I invented the, the first division as it was at the time, and I replaced Leeds United, who I loathed at the time because of Don Revy's I don't know, perfectionism. Let's be, let's be charitable. Yes. And I replaced them with Watford, and there was this thing called Rub Stubs. Rub studs soccer, which is basically you roll dice, and I basically created this football league out of my own imagination. Um, I brought a copy of um, Shoot magazine in with me and started putting photographs of you know players and stuff like that uh, on the walls of my sort of single room, or well, it was a double room, but I had it to myself. And then basically, yeah, you know, the, the game you know, became you know, fundamental to, to me alongside the daily ritual that I had. I had two newspapers that I poured over. One was the, the, the Daily Mirror, where uh, I was heavily influenced by, you know, probably the first editor of whom I was aware, a guy called Hugh Cudlip, who used to produce basically shock and awe editions where he bombarded the reader's conscience, largely through a, a, you know, a very, you know, Quite controversial, but I, I think a, a terrific reporter, uh, John Pilger. Yes, whose son and, Sam is um, an active yes. football reporter and massive Man U fan. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was I was hugely influenced by him because he humanised his subject, uh, and equally, I was you know my sort of sports writing hero at the time was was Ian Rodridge, and uh, the Daily Mail. He'd he'd fir- I'd, I'd begun cutting out his columns after the uh, Munich Massacre, which he did, and it was just so evocative and so brilliantly written. And it, it is weird, because part of the book, I try and give an insight into the nature of our heroes, both you know, from a personal point of view and also from you know, the reader's point of view, and, and almost like the lessons that you can take from them into our everyday lives. So with Woolers, um, he was a hero, and he became a friend and a mentor. So, yeah, I, I sort of did the... Um, the three and three and a half months came out, and I knew what I wanted. And then I, I basically dumped my A levels um, to join the local paper. Didn't go down very well with the headmaster, and uh, you know away we went. And um, probably the best, well, it is the best thing I've ever done because you know council house kid. You know I've, I've been ludicrously lucky to you know write and report and participate in sport in about eighty odd countries. So. Yeah, so I do try and give use that experience to almost you know, provide a narrative of, of, of my career, but also at the same time I'm looking at what sport means to individuals, how it finds its place in society, the political dimensions. You know, I was I was called in by Margaret Thatcher after Heisel as a very young Daily Telegraph reporter. You know, worked in the apartheid regime in in South Africa, where I probably took took sides for the first and only time of my journalistic career. I was covering a an absolutely disastrous England uh, rebel cricket tour under Mike Gatting just before the release of Nelson Mandela. Went back to see how my ANC contact, contacts at the time, who were absolutely on the right side of history, they were presidential advisors. When I returned, sort of mid, mid-90s, met Mandela, but also... You know, I had a time way before that where, you know, you know, talk about heroes. What are heroes? Well, we, we do, you know, mythologize them, but they're actually just, they're, they're flesh and blood like you and I, Johnny. You yeah, know? And mortgages. That's, 
Yeah, well, <laughs> perhaps not these days. <laughs> I suppose also, you know, looking back, you know, heroes themselves or, or, or sports people, it's strange because they grow old as you do. And, and, and you know, there's an arc that you follow almost simultaneously. So, for instance, when I was in, um, in the isolation ward, some friends from school came to see me and I didn't know this at the time, but one of one of them uh, would go on to become the partner of Luther Blissett, who was basically yeah. the first footballer uh, with whom I would um, be associated. Because when I first started the Waffle Observer, I covered the under 18s, and, and um, Luther Blissett was, um, you know, cutting up the, the Southeast Counties League as it was at the time. Just while, while you so, mentioned cutting up, the Peace Hospice Charity Shop that I live very near opened up on Monday, and who was there to cut the ribbon at 10 a.m. Luther, I should think. Yeah, free. I think he was just given freedom of Watford. I mean, he had freedom of Watford, but he was formally gifted it last month. He's great. You know, I, I got back in touch with him through Laura and his, his partner. And, you know, we talked to We Obviously, we've had a lot of similar experiences. I was there when he made his debut uh, in the, the old fourth division. I was there when he uh, made his England debut against Luxembourg and scored a hat-trick. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was there when he made his debut for AC Milan. And, you know... As is the way of things, I've lost touch with him. I saw him from afar at Graham Taylor's funeral. Um, Graham features in the book, and I've, 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 I've talked about him as, as probably the first manager with whom I worked. He almost he defined the, the power of football in, in terms of it being a, a source of, of, of community pride and, and, and an enthusiasm. And, and it, was, it was a two-sided process with Graham. He gave of himself, but expected others, most notably the fans and the town in general, to actually give back to him. So that was interesting. You know, the, the whole with with Graham, I, I'm saying, you know, I was a young, very, very young reporter, moved away very quickly actually after he after he got the job to work up in Fleet Street as a kid. When I was 19. I suppose also in in our game, you don't really realise what you're doing until you pause and it might be four years later that you actually have time to pause. It's weird. You know, at 19, I was, I was Dennis Compton's ghostwriter. I did my first book at 20, which was then, then with the, the England cricket captain, Ray Illingworth. I, I met Ali and Muhammad Ali. And that was, that was a classic. I was, I was a, uh, I was the chief sports writer of Westminster press, which is a regional, was a regional group of newspapers, which sounds a great title, but yeah. there was only one was only one central sports writer, and that was me. Yeah, Johnny Northcott so had the same thing. Johnny said he was the chief football writer of the Sunday Times. There's only one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so basically, with with, with Westminster, Westminster Press, my job there was to cover all the major events for about fifteen evening papers and a couple of um, regional dailies, Northern Echo. Uh, being being probably the most prominent, so that took me into international sport. You know, I did my first Olympic Games in 1980, uh, Brezhnev's Moscow, uh, which I, I you know I write about, and, and also try to give an idea of paranoia of times, uh, but how football and sport operated within Eastern Europe as it was. Uh, the great thing about sport is you can use it for your own ends in in many ways because it it can transcend politics. To give a, a you know a small example, in in 1982, Poland was under martial law and was a closed country. We were able to get in as accredited football writers to cover the uh, England under 21 team. We were playing a two-legged uh, 
water final, I think it was from memory, in the European Championships, under 21 Championships. So we had a game in, in Warsaw where they weren't allowing Western journalists in, but they had to let us in simply mm-hmm. because if they didn't, Poland would have been kicked out of the competition. And that sort of international brotherhood of journalists kicked in. The local guys put us in touch with solidarity activists um, who were leading the opposition to the communist regime. Hence, probably one of the most bizarre scenarios for an interview I've ever done, which was actually in a confessional in uh, in a cathedral, arch cathedral in, in Warsaw. And you're Catholic, um, aren't you? Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, so that was. Uh, so at least it was made fun. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I'll read the book in that case. To have it, to have the guy on the other side, you know, the other guy, because basically we were getting what we came for, which was right. Okay, we want first-hand accounts of what's actually going on here, mm-hmm. and we were able to get them out. As it happened, England won that tournament; they beat Germany in the final. So that experience with Westminster Press really helped me massively. So I could go into the Telegraph as a young a young journo. The, the, the early experience probably typifies what I talked about earlier, which is that whole idea of sharing someone's life cycle to a degree. This was 1980. When, I first, when he, he came over, he was trying to get back into the heavyweight division at the time, essentially took over an event in the Hilton in, in Park Lane. And at the end of it, he, he walked out into the into the, this four-lane four highway. I don't know if you know it. Yeah, I know Johnny, it well. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, he walked out into the middle of the road and stopped the traffic and then held court. And, you know, as a young journo, anyone reading, you know, listening to this, um, you know, develop yourself a, a sharp set of elbows and you can get to the front. So I did, and, and you know, as, a, as I'm talking to you now, I can see the photograph of oh, great. Um, you know, me with Ali, which is actually reproduced in the book. But it's, so, you know, I, I had that experience of, you know, the aura that, that, that only the greats can generate. And as a kid, I was probably, I still believed in, in immortality then. And if I'd have looked a bit closer, I'd have probably seen the signs that people were already murmuring about with, with Parkinson's. He was just beginning to have a tremor. But sport is about people. And it's it's not so much about the games they play. Obviously, you know, we've got a modern, the modern trend now, especially in football writing, is, is towards um, you know analytical writing. There's some terrific stuff out there. You know, I've always been a words man rather than a numbers man, maybe a feelings man. So, yeah, so it was an, it's, it's been an interesting journey, let's put it like that. And I suppose, you know, I would, what I would hope is that rather than people, you know, saying, oh, well, there's Calvin there, he's showing off, he's done this, he's done that. I've been really, really lucky because some of the things that I've done would be completely out of the question these days, completely out of the question. So as, as Chief Swartz wrote a Daily Telegraph, for instance, I went – uh, to David Welsh, who was a, a fantastic, innovative sports editor. He was the guy who started the uh, first ever pullout, you know, the Monday morning pullout. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said to David, look, I think this will work. I want to go and sail around the world. And he, he sort of looked at me f- strangely. Uh, you know, they explained the, the idea, which was train for a couple of years, then do basically a year on a year on the seas, or certainly out, out of the diary for a year. Well, best part of it now today that wouldn't that would just never happen you know as chief sports writer at the time you know my role was to do everything you know the, the you know it's the so-called big stuff and he allowed me to miss the first premier league season to all intents and purposes to do this you didn't now, miss much <laughs> well it was one of those ones where it was pre you know pre um the sort of online chain gang mm. 
you know, when I came back, the Telegraph had 25,000 letters. It was mad um, because it, it, it just it just captured people's imagination. And it was great for me in terms of, you know, my career and everything else. But it was a huge personal experience for me as well. And I've written about that in the book. And I've actually, as part of this, I actually found my old kit bag and, and my the journal that I did when I was at sea. And when we were on the way back from Cape Town was the final port of call. Basically, we went around the world the wrong way against the winds and tides. Um, The stop-offs were in Rio, Hobart, Tasmania, and Cape Town. And one of the guys on the other boat, one of the other boats, committed suicide on the way home. And I've reproduced, word for word, the entries that I did once, once when we got the news that you know, this chap had, had been lost overboard and then realisation was that, he, that, that you know, we were looking to think, well, what did happen? And, you know, that was pretty raw. And it was a, it was a, a fundamental time in my life in many ways because I, I, I questioned then the validity of, 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 of doing what I was doing you know, in terms of, well, what's sports writing? It's, it's, it's pretty meaningless, isn't it? Um, I went through a bit of a, you know, Midlife, well, it wasn't quite midlife, but it was, it was a bit of a personal crush of the, crisis of the conscience mm-hmm. in many ways. Because when I came back, I couldn't take couldn't take sport seriously, really. You know, I, I do sort of talk about that in the book, uh, but I was actually brought out of it. You know, I, I ended up going to the Falklands and trying to find a bit of solitude, doing that sort of. You mm-hmm. know, it was, um, you know, that 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 assignment was to play one of the world's most remote golf courses. When I got back. One of those 25,000 letters was from Bobby Charlton, believe it or not. And Bobby features earlier in the book um, with a famous press team match that we had in Switzerland that he played for us. But this was about really, it, this, this was setting up the second season of Premier League, which, which you know, United won the double. And it was him talking about his experience of football as a family and you know, using Munich to articulate that. And that stayed with me. You know, the, the Millwall book I did was called Family uh, because it was the first time I realised that actually, yes, there was this sort of familial element to a dressing room and, uh, and, and a club in general. So that got me back on the straight and narrow, such as it was. Again, when we look at life cycles, I, I've been particularly struck over the last three, four years by the plight of former footballers um, and dementia. You know, my last book, State of Play, I, I, I featured um, Dawn Astle, uh, the story of Jeff, her dad, mm-hmm. uh, did so in a, doc- in, a, in a documentary I did for, the, uh, for BT Sport as well. And the news that Bobby had been diagnosed with dementia hit me pretty hard. If I'm being entirely honest, it wasn't a surprise because I'd been told a couple of years earlier that, you know, there were signs uh, and obviously didn't write anything about it but I look at dementia now and I see the game's ignorance literally killing people it is and that is appalling you know it's absolutely I can't believe it's taken 20 years for it to be classed I think it has just been classed as an industrial disease hasn't it Uh, well it did it did um, you know Dawn basically fought the system for 18 years her moral courage and her persistence is incredible she was dismissed really by the great and supposedly good of, of professional football. You know, Gordon Taylor, you know, essentially said, well, you know, my mum's got dementia and she's never heard of the football. Dawn's response to that was basically, I think, to try and lump him, but it yeah. was it was, a, it was, it was, just, 
I just find if you're looking for heroes, it's not just a Bobby Charlton or uh, you know, or a Muhammad Ali. People like Dawn Astor are heroes as well. Out of, out of circumstance and, and you know, personal, the, her personal qualities are amazing. You know, I, I, I use also in the book uh, you know, the story of uh, Billy Bingham, who's now 89, I think. Sonny Everton's oldest living player. Uh, he's he's suffered from uh, dementia for 16 years, and I came across in my research a, a, a really moving interview with his with his son in the uh, you know, on the Everton website. Funny enough, and um, Again, that was, it was such a vivid account of an individual you know, suffering from something which is, you know, of, 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 you know existing, obviously it's an existential threat, but also it just, if you, it, I don't know, it, it's difficult to find the word sometimes, but I look at that and essentially there's a generation of footballers who have been killed by the goal, who are in the process of dying because of the game they love. Yeah, and these and are the, these are the that. kind of footballers who haven't been put off by the lack of safeguarding that Danny Taylor's been so good at spotlighting. Oh, yeah, and and I suppose you know people ask me, well, why do you write about sport? And I know we started off by talk, me talking about maybe going into another genre. I write about sport because it shows me the best in human nature, but it also shows me the worst. And so you can look at you know through history, and you know, I do I, I look at you know the influence of the Stasi. Uh, in East German sport and East German football in particular in the book. You know, as I said, I've looked at the iniquities of, of, of apartheid. You can really, it's, it's real world stuff. Sport, you know, we, we, we get sort of thrown at, you know, the, the whole sort of toy department jibe that we get. And, you know, to be honest, we pretty much live up to that in many ways. But when you look at the sport and how it can focus attention and really shine a very, very piercing light into areas of society that really they flourish in darkness. And I think, you know, that you mentioned Danny's work there on, on child abuse. It's, it's, it's terrific. It's, it's fantastic. And, and all power to him. And, you know, I, I also look in, in the book, there's a chapter called who cares for the carers basically use two guys who really are their, their commitment to the welfare of young players. Um, one of whom uh, was the coach of my son's team, called Tony Robinson, whose son, funny enough, Anthony plays for plays for Fulham. I used I knew Anthony as about two year old as a toddler. Going, he was the mascot of the, this little kids team that my son played for, and he works with you know estate kids who basically been rejected by mm-hmm. the system, and also a guy called Pete, Pete Lowe, and Pete has featured in a previous book and also in a, in the film, and he'd been going through a bit of a bad time um, just prior to the pandemic and we got together in a golf club in just outside Manchester because he had a couple of things he wanted to sort of get off his chest and he'd been dealing with the father of a, a young lad who'd been released by a Premier League Academy. He found him in the family garage in the process of um, attempting to take his own life, which is a, you know, obviously a hugely emotional process to be part of in terms of like the way he was rehabilitated, this, this, this lad. But Pete also, he, he was very, he said to me on that day, and to say, this is probably about this time last year, you know, just, just before lockdown. And he said, look, we're going to wake up one morning and we'll read, you know, a paper or scroll on our phone and see a young teenage boy has taken his own life because of rejection by 
a Premier League academy, or no, you say a Premier League, a, a professional academy. And in October, that came to pass in, in terrible prescience in that. Mm. But also, he had, you know, Pete, again, we talked about moral courage earlier on. He had the moral courage to admit that he'd had a bit of a breakdown because of it in terms of he, he was the problem solver. And his life was doing, you know, it was a continual, the continual stress of dealing with other people's angst and anguish. Yeah, who looked after him? No one. No one. And and again, that's why I wanted to try and highlight him in the book in terms of, it was a bit of a tribute, you know, I, I, I hope it's seen as a tribute to him and people like him and do good things. Because it is a, it is a, it can be a terrible game. Or oh, well, the game can do terrible things, but there are some really, really good people trying to make it better. And I think sometimes we forget that, to be honest, Johnny. Jeremy Whiston is the name of the kid. I was talking about this with Ricky Hill a couple of weeks ago, uh, who was the first footballer to enter the football library because you and Ricky are now uh, both pitch authors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Ricky, last, the, last, well, the last time I saw Ricky play, and, and this is bizarre, David Plea yes. took... Um, Luton to Iceland to Reykjavik for um, a game because it, it was it was too cold would you believe to play in England so we all jumped on a plane went to Reykjavik <laughs> and played this sort of friendly in about you know minus eighteen and and uh, you know essentially uh, Ricky finished the game and he had icicles coming off his beard and his, his sort of you know his facial hair. And those icicles were like three or four, three or four inches long. It was just ludicrous. He looked like some sort of like yeti, you know. Oh, it was weird. It was very, very strange. So that was the last time I saw him play. Actually, funny enough. Oh um, no, he was good. He's written a very good book. And uh, yeah, I've read it. Yeah, no, it's good. Oh, it's, good. it's one of the areas that we're looking at at the moment. You know, I've done my podcast this morning. We've been talking about Kudela and New again Aethers. enough uh, with know, the racism. Well, it's every it's pretty much every. It's every week, doing yeah. But well, it's every it's an everyday occurrence. But again, I use that as an example of yet another societal issue is high, not just highlighted, but you know, it's absolutely magnified by the ubiquity of sport. And so, sport course, again yeah. is in a strange way is actually playing a an important societal role in making sure that we don't forget this stuff is going on. Now, what should we do? You know, I, I, I don't know what Ricky said to you, Johnny, but certainly I welcome the players becoming really militant and just not playing, just refusing to play. And, and also there needs to be a blanket ban on social media, a blanket ban so that the social media companies will have to do something. Yeah. At the moment, it's just, you know, we, we, we've gone beyond the pale far too often it is i'm chronicling it on bbc sport without fail without fail after every football match a player who is not white is abused and the bbc report it and i don't know if they're reporting it for clicks but i'm sure they're reporting it because there is definitely a way that the conversation can be bent you've talked about robust responses to racism and throughout this season in the football writers podcast you've had some great black journalists and also one anton ferdinand who um yeah. who was on because he made this documentary in november was yeah. that his decision yeah. was he talking about boycotting social media six months ago he was one of the sort of missing voices in that whole debate i always felt you know with the john terry incident and everything else and 
again, I think as the years go on, you know, these issues are actually, they, they're churned around in people's brains. And I think probably Anton, without wishing to speak for him, but certainly the impression he gave me and when we talked off, off, um, off mic as well, it had a huge effect on him that he didn't really, didn't recognise for quite some time. And in the end, he almost felt that he'd let himself down by not being more vocal about what happened to him. And I thought that documentary was a very powerful piece of television, but also as a social document, I think it's really important. It shone a light that needed to be shone. Where are we going to go with it? I, you know, I, I looked at the, you know, the walk-off from the PSG game in December uh, and uh, I thought, well, that could be football's Tommy Smith moment. But again, you know, I, I look at the UEFA punishment of Kudela, or, and it's the minimum they could have applied. You know, they've just got they, they've got to take it seriously, but they've also got to take their duty of care seriously more than anything else. Because at the moment, UEFA, it seems to me, are more diverted by commercial opportunity through something like a Super League. You know, they're trying to get into bed with the bigger clubs. Then actually, what you know, what is what is your fundamental reason to exist? It is to become to be essentially the guardians of the game, the European game, and they're failing that miserably by the way that they're not taking the opportunity through I don't know what political expedience is the obvious but, thought. But they say no um, to racism. They oh, but yeah, but you know, Johnny, how many how many empty slogans have you heard shouted? Seven hundred and six. Well, there yeah. we are. You know, uh, and that's probably in October, October, November, and December alone last year. It's just, it, it. That's why I think, you know, the, the players, just as fans have, obviously, I think fans have latent power. And if, you know, towards the end of the book, I'm looking at, well, how does, you know, how will football evolve post-pandemic? But I think fans have a, have more power, perhaps, than they they realise. Players have huge power and influence. If they, if they basically, as a group, I don't know, one Premier League Saturday, say, say the final Saturday of the Premier League season, as an example. Well, yeah, final Saturday. Saturday yeah. They kick the game off and that's it. They all walk off. Ooh. Why not? Yeah, and, and, and okay, um, you know, broadcasters would... Um, they'd fill. They'd have to have, fill. They'd, they'd bring they'd Michael have... Holding in for two hours. <laughs> But, you know, if I think, if, you know, I, I use that as a, you know, mm. I'm saying that almost not, not quite flippantly, but I, I don't expect stuff like that to happen. But I do feel that it is time for a concerted, concerted gesture because, and again, this is one of the, the other chapters in the book I look at, there is a new spirit of athlete activism, you know, most obviously represented by Marcus Rashford. Well, I call it Kaepernicking. Yeah. After Colin, yeah. yeah, yeah. Marcus Rashford has been the most cogent political figure in this country. Let, you know, let's forget about his sporting exploits and how he's managed to sustain his career for Manchester United in England. He, he's got a greater grasp of social conscience and um, culture of a self-serving or self-helping society than any politician you'd care to mention, you know, either any colour, either or any colour. So the work that he's done on child hunger, the child poverty, basic, basic stuff, driven by his own memories of his own childhood, has been, I think, astonishing. 
and one of the one of the few reasons to be proud of Britain, Britain as we as we stand here now or sit here now. Then you add that to other elements of that generation. Obviously, Raheem Sterling, very very vocal and um, strident in in the early days of the anti uh, sorry the anti racism uh, movement. You've got younger players like Rhys James getting involved in in charitable stuff. There is now, I think, a spirit of athlete activism. We normally used to, and you were right to, to, to mention Kaepernick, we normally look at North American sport to get those sorts of examples. So the Tommy Smiths and LeBron James in, in, in the presidential election. Uh, you see, the thing about Rashford is that I think he is still, because he is still playing, he's still visible every week, that makes him an even more powerful symbol because he's actually fulfilling the hero part of the equation, i.e., you know, the kid who's playing for Manchester United that you know, a trillion other kids would love to be. And then on the other side, he is presenting a case for a fairer, more caring society. And not just presenting that, he's working at it and he's embarrassing politicians. And, you know, as I say, I can't, I can't praise you enough. I think he's been amazing. Um, and that that gives me hope for the future of, of football because that's you know where, where the book ends up right where are we going with all this and mm. you know I, I did deal with these sort of issues um, in the documentary I did for BT Sport called Hours looking at fan run clubs or clubs that are heavily influenced by their own supporters.